Have you ever started in the middle of a TV series or a movie series? Have you ever started watching a movie halfway through? If you ever have, my, my guess is that there were some confusing things that you witnessed and saw that you didn't understand. And it probably didn't make sense because you started halfway through. You were missing the context, the background for what you were seeing. This has happened to me several times before when watching television with friends. I'd have to have them fill me in on what I was watching or seeing. And, and to fully appreciate what I was watching, they would sometimes you know, pause the, the, the TV or the movie or whatever it was and then, and then fill me in so that I could better grasp what was taking place and so I could fully appreciate the, the whole plot line of the story. Now, of course, I could, I could make much sense of what I was watching, but sometimes there were parts that I definitely could not piece together or understand the, the significance without the background or context. And in a similar way, even here this morning, as we come to the New Testament, Mark 11, we are, in a sense, jumping in halfway. And to fully grasp the significance or make sense of what is taking place, we really have to know the background, the, the context, the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Otherwise, without it, we won't fully grasp what we are witnessing and seeing even in today's account. So as we explore Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, we'll, we'll spend time understanding the background in certain places and in so doing, help add greater color and beauty to what is taking place in this passage. So please turn with me to Mark 11, 1 through 11. And as you do, you may recognize this as a passage which is often read on Palm Sunday, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As we pick back up here in verse 1, Jesus is continuing his approach to Jerusalem, and behind him follows a very, very large crowd. This crowd has been following him for some time, and they've witnessed many of Jesus's miracles. They even just witnessed the healing of a blind man, Bartimaeus, as you may recall from last week. 
But from here on forward, Mark will focus the rest of his gospel on Jesus's life in Jerusalem from chapter 11 to the end of the book. So as we come to verse 1, we recognize that they are now very, very close to the city that they've been working their way towards. And they are near the two villages of Bethphage and Bethany, which stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethany is where Jesus will end up staying while he's at Jerusalem. It's also where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. So as Jesus and his disciples approach these two villages, we recognize that they are only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. As they come in to these two villages, Jesus at this moment sends two of his disciples ahead of him. And then he gives them these very specific instructions. Go into the village ahead of you. And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it. And they will send it back here right away. So Jesus gives some interesting instructions to two unnamed disciples. Might we even say strange instructions? Now, I, I wonder how you might respond if someone asked you to do something like, like this. You would most likely think about it for a minute before you just go and take someone else's donkey, before you just go and untie it. You'd probably have more than a few questions for the person who is asking you to do this. Nevertheless, the disciples follow Jesus' instructions, and they come to find everything as Jesus has said. They find a colt tied to a door, one which has never been ridden, and they begin to untie it just as Jesus told them to do. And when they are asked, what are you doing untying this colt? They respond in the way Jesus instructed. The Lord needs it and will send it back right away. And they let them go. Everything Jesus said has come to pass. Everything down to the very second. But again, we're faced with numerous questions. How did Jesus know that this was all going to happen? Did he make some kind of prearrangement with the person who owned the donkey? Are, there, are his instructions to his disciples some sort of, you know, code language to obtain it from this person? Or, or is this some kind of special knowledge that, that Jesus possessed? And the truth is, we don't know. We don't know. And what is plain is that Mark doesn't really care to tell us, nor does he really want us focused on this question. He would rather focus our attention on the receiving of the donkey, which brings us to the second question. Why does Jesus want a donkey to ride on? Now remember, he's been traveling for some time here, from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. He's walked more than 15 miles. And now that he's only two miles away from Jerusalem, he wants a, a donkey to ride on? So Mark doesn't tell us outright, as we would like, 
but he wants us to figure it out on our own. And no doubt many of the early Jews would have been able to do so easily as they were well-versed in the Old Testament and its prophecies. They knew the background. They had the context. And so they would have understood implicitly what Jesus is doing here. So as we seek to gain the same background information to properly understand, we have to go to Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 in our Bibles this morning. This is a passage we must look at if we are to understand what is taking place here in Jesus' request for a donkey. As we come to Zechariah, we understand that the people of God have returned to their land. But whether their hearts have turned back to God is somewhat questionable. When we get to chapter 9, we find promises from God to Israel concerning her enemies. The first seven verses contain God's just judgment upon Israel's enemy. He will eventually eliminate her oppressors completely. He will wipe them out and he will deliver her. And then as we come to verse 8, we transition to God coming to the temple to guard it from enemies because his eyes have now seen it. It's interesting that God at this point will guard his temple, his house personally, because his eyes have seen it. Then comes the messianic prophecy and the background to our text this morning. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. The one who would free Israel from her enemies would be the one who came riding on a donkey. The promised king of Israel that they were looking for would come in this way. And this is no doubt the background to our text here this morning. So as we come back to Mark then and see Jesus intentionally getting a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, we find that he is purposely fulfilling this prophecy long ago of the awaited Messiah of Israel. Where Jesus hid his true identity as the Messiah, ever since Peter identified him as the Christ in chapter 8, we see this veil being removed. Jesus is making public his claim to be that Messiah. And we began to even see that last week as Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, the promised Messiah. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't quiet him or ignore him. Rather, Jesus affirms Bartimaeus' identification of him as the son of David. And here with the instructions to his disciples to get him a donkey, to ride into Jerusalem. He is claiming to be that king. And the people around him began to pick up on this reality, which is exactly why they began to sing praises in the following verses. So whereas the kings of other nations would display great strength and power by often riding on a horse into a city, the king of Israel 
would come in humility, riding on a lowly donkey. He would ride on a donkey which has never been sat upon. In other words, this donkey was to be sanctified, set apart for royalty. It would be reserved for the king of kings. And so Jesus, by careful planning and action, is intentionally revealing himself to be the Messiah. I think it's good at this point to notice the bravery of Jesus in this moment. Jesus knows by claiming to be the Messiah that he is in fact setting in motion his eventual death on a cross that he's predicted several times already. But despite this, Jesus does not shy away from his father's calling on him, but he willingly embraces the coming rejection and death. We shy away at the potential thought of facing just a a little bit of pain and rejection. But here we find Jesus embracing his calling as king, even though it meant he would face certain rejection, shame, and a horrible death by crucifixion. So as we see Jesus go forward to his certain death, know that he does so for us as the suffering king so that we might live in no acceptance from God. And so because of this, we can trust Jesus and find comfort in him who embraced rejection, pain, and shame for us, even in the face of it all. So as Jesus and the crowd continue their approach towards Jerusalem, which would have again been something less than two miles, the disciples and crowds began to throw their garments, their their clothes and branches on the pathway of the donkey. They began to give Jesus what we would call the red carpet treatment, something like that. They are giving Jesus a king's greeting into Jerusalem. They know who Jesus is claiming to be, and so they welcome him as that king. And then the people begin shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I think it goes without saying, but when we shout, we're excited about something. Most often we see people shouting for their sports teams. Sometimes we see parents shouting for their children at at sports games too or competitions. But here we find people excitedly shouting, Hosanna, which means, O Lord, save us. What the people are shouting here actually originates in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. In this psalm that they are quoting, was often sung at Passover and was a song of deliverance, a song of freedom from captivity. The crowds of people take up this psalm of praise and thanksgiving, and they now apply it to Jesus as the one who's going to free them. The crowd believes Jesus to be the promised king, the one who is here to save them and to rescue them from their oppressors. And while they are right that Jesus is here to to set free his people, 
the enemy Jesus would overthrow is not who they think it would be. Nor would he set them free in the typical fashion of kings of the past. Jesus would not rescue his people from Rome as they thought, but as we've been saying, he would rescue them from their own sin. This is what they needed freedom and liberation from. The enemy that needed defeating most was Satan, sin, and death. Enemies, which we've seen throughout the entirety of Mark. And so King Jesus would rescue his people from these enemies. But it would not be through warfare or through the killing of others as these people suppose. But he would ultimately rescue his people through giving up his life as a ransom for many by dying for his people. He would be crucified on their behalf. He would be left alone in the end and abandoned by the Father on the cross as he takes their sins upon himself. And the people who are currently singing these praises of their Messiah will find themselves nowhere to be found in that day. This reality colors the way we view this whole scene. Imagine what Jesus is thinking or feeling in these moments as he embraces his destiny for us. The praise being sung to Jesus must seem almost empty and hollow. These people sing praise to Jesus because they think of him primarily in terms of a political figure who will help them win and overthrow Rome as someone who will bring glory and honor back to national Israel. But as we've already said, this isn't what Jesus has come to do. And I think too often, like the crowd, we can have a convoluted view of Jesus. We may get excited about Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. We may, like the crowd, think our biggest problem is external to us, foreign to us. If only our physical enemies would go away, if only our lack of things would go away, if only I had this or that, then I would experience salvation. But what the people of Israel needed was a savior not from things external, but things internal, our sin. Because the problem we have internally is far, far more serious than the things external to us. We have a spiritual cancer called sin, and without a remedy, a savior, it will kill us. It will separate us from God for all eternity. It will rob us of joy and peace and ruin us completely if left unchecked. Jesus understood the seriousness of this cancer, which all man has, and he was focused on saving us from it, saving us from the wickedness and the sinfulness of our own individual sinful hearts. So as we see what Jesus' mission is truly about, we should adopt the same mindset of Christ. We should see our own sin as the greatest problem that we need saving from. It's not something external to us, it's internal. And Jesus is the only remedy, the only solution. This is why he came. And so as we come to the end of this account, after all the excitement, all the praise from the crowd, we read that Jesus 
makes his way to the temple. And then he looks around, and then he goes back home because it's late. This ending is about as anticlimactic as it can get. It's, it's unexpected. We think something glorious is about to happen. But then it just ends. Nothing. The crowd disperses. The Gospel of Mark is the only gospel that ends this scene with Jesus going to the temple, looking around, and then heading home. And so we have to wonder, why? Why does Mark record Jesus going to the temple just to look around? What was he doing? Why does Mark end this way? I think it's because Mark wants us to slow down and make a connection to a prophecy he's already mentioned in chapter 1. At the very beginning of the gospel, Mark opens by quoting Malachi 3, verse 1, which says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And then Mark connects this prophecy to John the Baptist. But then that's where we stop. That's where he ends. Mark doesn't continue on to what the rest of the passage says. But if we did, we would read this in the second verse of Malachi 3. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. What I believe we are supposed to understand and see here is that Jesus is the messenger of that covenant, the new covenant. And he has suddenly come to his temple and he is looking around to see what he will find. And in the coming weeks, we will find that he doesn't like what he finds. And so with the rest of the prophecy comes a warning. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? With Jesus' coming also comes judgment on evildoers, as he will overturn money changers and condemn the Pharisees and scribes who reject him, Jesus will condemn the religious system as empty and hollow and even prophesy of the destruction of the temple by the end of the week. But for now, what we find Jesus is just looking around, pondering, planning his next steps. Mark is setting for us the stage for what is to come. This is the calm before the storm. So as we end this account, I think Mark once more intends for us to connect Jesus as this promised messenger of the covenant. The prophecies and scriptures have revealed this reality, and it points us to Jesus as the one whom we've longed for, whom we've waited for, and we're invited to respond. Is Jesus truly the king who is worthy of our submission and trust and service? 
Is he truly the king who came to die and be resurrected for our sins? If so, will we follow Jesus? Will we embrace the suffering and pain that may come from following him? Will he be king over our lives? We remember that there is a coming day when Jesus will return once more. Except this time, he will not be riding on a lowly donkey, but according to Revelation 19, he will return on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. And for those who are following Jesus as our king, this will be a glad day for us, a joyous day. But for those who do not know Christ, who have rejected him from being king over their life, it will be a terrifying day. So if you do not know Christ as king, know him today. Jesus calls you to look to him in faith and repentance, and he saves those who come to him, to those who pledge their allegiance and their faithfulness to Christ alone. And so with this reminder here this morning, let us, as the church, live in light of our king's imminent return and look forward to that day when he will come and he will rescue us fully and completely from our sin and where he will exercise perfect justice in totality in this land.